0: I'm very lucky that I grew up in a very devout, warm and home where inquiry was encouraged um, in in all different directions. Um, but my dad used to say something that I think is especially helpful, which is that truth is sometimes on the far side of uncomfortable learning. It, you know, so so I think that there can be things that will unsettle your convictions um, and and force you to stretch and make space for new ideas that that don't feel comfortable but um, i'm really confident that um that there's a way to find truth and peace on the far side of that kind of stretching and and that it is satisfying in a way that unchallenged ideas are are not
1: A midweek episode of the Cultural Hall for you. This is just a shorty, a little bit more of an extension of our discussion around Eugene England, Gene to his friends. Uh, This is a a, a part, rather, of our introduction to Mormon thought. Uh, That's Joe Spencer, Matt Bowman's project with the University of Illinois Press. There will be a bunch of these interviews. It just so happens to coincide with the interview that we did with Terrell Gibbons about Eugene England. He's so hot right now. Wait for that reference within this episode. I encourage you to find us on Patreon, uh, follow us on all social media, and if you've not yet left a review for the Cultural Hall, take a second. What's what's holding you up? I, I mean, it's a simple ask. The, the reviews don't cost you anything. It would take merely your time. Are we not worth your time? You're worth my time. Can I can I be worth your time? Take a minute, leave a review, and enjoy this episode of the Cultural Hall.
2: Give land if they live righteously.
1: It's time for another episode of the Cultural Hall, and I'm honored to be joined by Christine Haglund. Now, if you remember back in episode 531 of the Cultural Hall, uh, we had Matthew Bowman and Joseph Spencer in to talk about their series, introductions to Mormon thought uh, that work with that they're doing with the University of Illinois Press uh, to be able to put out various books about various thought leaders in and around Mormon thought. They kind of gave us a preview of it. Well, as it turns out, those books are starting to come out. And uh, Christine is author of one of those first books. And that book is about Eugene England, which I know everyone listening to this is like, hold on, wasn't it just the last episode uh, that you released that talked all about uh, Eugene England? Well, yes, it was, but that was with Terrell Gibbons, and this is Christine Hagland, so I'm sure it will be a different conversation. Welcome, Christine.
0: Thanks. Nice to
1: be here. Now, I shared with you some of the things that uh, Terrell uh, shared with us in in that episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one in particular, I, I know that you sort of said, well, I don't know. There, there's a couple of things I, I maybe have a bone to pick with, but I'd like to start off with, the idea that uh, Eugene England, and by the way, for context, if you haven't listened to episode 543, you're going to want to listen to that before you listen to this, as we may be referential to it. Uh, you you said you have a bone to pick with the fact that he hated being called a liberal or a conservative or that labels were something that he didn't particularly care for. And you said, wow, hold on there. I'd love to start right there.
0: Okay. He... um. I I don't think he necessarily objected to the terms liberal and conservative, I think he he objected to people sort of using them in in polarizing ways in um, one of his um, last formal talks at BYU it was actually just in a faculty meeting of the English department. Um, He he talked about these labels and and his contention was that they should be essentially descriptive that. Um, we find examples of both kinds of people in the Book of Mormon, and and they're not meant to be pejoratives, that uh, that neither one should be pejorative. So conservative means that you hold on, you hold fast to um, principles of the gospel, and you're steadfast in your testimony, and you're resistant to changing too quickly because you see the dangers of change. Liberal, on the other hand, means that you embrace gospel ideals of eternal progression and, um, you know, openness to new ideas and and willingness to think about things and you're less afraid of change. So he, he just felt like they should be more neutrally descriptive terms. And he objected to the ways that um, American, that the terms liberal and conservative from American politics were being mapped onto conflicts in the church. So, you know, the, the subtitle of my book is a Mormon liberal, and I've heard in roundabout ways, that Terrell hates that title um, <laughs> and, and thinks it's totally wrong. Um, I wouldn't have necessarily chosen the title, except that I only got one word to pick. The the um naming convention for all the books in the series is name a Mormon blank. And the blank is supposed to be one or maybe two words. And so I I was torn between teacher and um and liberal. And um I teacher would be right, but but less distinctive, less, it distinguishes him less from other people. And so
1: now, now, in asking Terrell uh, about how he came to the book, as I understand that there's you know sort of a, a familial uh, connection in that the the widow of Eugene came to Terrell as the story goes two times. Uh, she sort yeah. of he, he she was sort of rejected the first time by Terrell too busy had other things sort of on his plate and then um, like a ghost that comes to visit before Christmas you know came back and said no Terrell I need you to do this and then sort of took up the mantle to do that how. How did you come to write um and this very different book I should point out? Um yeah. but how did how did you come to this this project?
0: Well, so Matt and Joe are friends of mine and they asked me to do it is the the very short version. I've always been a fan of of Gene's work. Um and in some, you know, in some ways I've followed in his footsteps. I edited his journal for a while. Um, and I also like him like to find a a third way, a middle way when it's possible. And so I think Joe and and Matt thought that I was sort of temperamentally and experientially suited to understand his work. And um, so they asked me to do it, but I don't know that I would have independently um, set out to write a book.
1: About Gene England. So, so uh, worth noting, kind of the distinctions and the differences between these, you know, a Mormon, these introduction to Mormon thoughts. As I understand, um, where Tarrell's is sort of a, a biography, your book is, is not that. It is biographical in sort of its nature, but it's it's more seeing what the the faith through the eyes and words of Eugene England, or or, or what what's the treatment of it.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a um a good way to capture it. Um the idea is that each of the books will start with a brief bi- biographical sketch. So they said, you know, 10 pages and I I'm pretty close. I think I pushed it to 12. But so the, so the actual biography is supposed to be very short. And then um I didn't do a lot of archival research the way that that Tarrell did um because the the point is basically to introduce people to his public, published work to get people interested in in his thinking. And so um hopefully there's not so I mean, of course, it's always an interpretation, right? There's sure. no way that I could just summarize Gene's work and, and have it not reflect some of my own um intuitions and, and biases. But but the idea is just to present a summary and introduction that might interest people in his work, give them a guide of what to look for, and, you know, help them get started in making their way through his his work.
1: In my mind's eye, the way that I see these sort of introduction to Mormon thought books is like, you get the little sampler, and then if you were to go to a library, then they start piling the books on your hands until you come out with just the little sampler right underneath your chin, and you have, you know, a hundred other works that you're trying to do to gain an understanding of not only what the individual believed, but also Uh, what was spoken
0: yeah and I mean I um you know I'm old I'm 50 so I was alive for much of the time that that Gene was and um had I gone to BYU would have had him as a as a professor but lots of people who are interested in Mormon studies now you know that's distant past for them um and so some of his things don't make sense without some of the historical context in which they were situated so I'm trying to offer that too to people who might not um remember what the nineties were like in Mormon studies or, or things like that. And and we'll understand his work better with that background.
1: It seems sort of interesting to me that we're really hot and heavy into Eugene England right now, where a year from uh, a year ago, you know, maybe we weren't with having two books published and, and, and maybe it just speaks to the generation that I am. I'm a little bit younger than you. I, that's meant non-offensively, of course, it just is factual. That's Um, just how it is. But but knowing that that sort of wasn't my upbringing, and I think anyone younger than me wouldn't necessarily, unless they sort of sought after it, know about in, this individual character. Why do you think it's so uh, so hot to be to be done right now? Why why is Eugene so hot right now?
0: Honestly, I think a lot of it is coincidence. Um, you know, it it just happens that that. Um, Matt and Joe were wanted to write this book at, at the same time as, as Charlotte is, um, or wanted Terrell to do his. And also, I was like a year late um, <laughs> on my contract. So it, it should have been like a two-year thing, and it's just going to all happen at once. I, I think Jean's work is especially salient for this moment. Like, it's especially useful to have this moment right now because we are at such a moment of extreme polarization in the church. Um, it, it comes less, I think, out of sort of Mormon studies, Mormon history topics than it did in the nineties, but the church still has this, this real um, sort of looming and threatening schism. I think there's a sense that um, that we're really divided from each other. And Gene perceived that during his time, in some ways he was really prophetic about the ways that American politics were gonna end up dividing the saints. And so his work is important um, because of how he sketches that out. And, um, but even more because he thought you could bridge it, you know, we we see kids now, like my kids, um, whose, whose politics end up being more progressive than their parents. And they think that means they can't stay in the church, that, that they have to somehow make a decision that their political convictions, um, you know, compel them to not be members of a church that, is in some ways very conservative and mired in in older positions that we now regard as wrong, and Gene, you know, faced this with especially with blacks in the priesthood, which by the time he was in graduate school seemed like a very outdated um, and um, retrogressive position. And um, but he he found a way. He he really wanted to continue to be a disciple and a saint, and he he figured out a way to to make that work with his politics and to to call attention to the problems that he saw while being a loving participant in the church. And um, I think that example is especially salient right now for for lots of people in the church.
1: So then what do we glean from it? Because I love that. And that's why I wanted to to push on that a little bit, is I, I feel like that very much is the reason why there is so much attention around this individual, is that it's not stay or go. It's not you're in or you're out. it, it is There is a way to be able to be both loving and thoughtful toward the church and, and believing, but also say these are things that are wrong. What can we learn um, maybe from the priesthood or maybe from some other thing that he shared taught on that would that would allow us to see, you know m- modern day Mormonism uh, and be able to see it less black and white and more sort of nuanced and gray?
0: Yeah. So in his um, in his first essay for dialogue that he published in the in the first issue, he drew on Joseph Smith's quotation that by proving contraries, truth is made manifest. And then on the Apostle Paul's prove all things, hold fast that which is good. And the two of those things he took as a formula um, that that some skepticism, sort of the best version of enlightenment questioning um, was really valuable that it helped you to see what was wrong in institutions, even, you know, that had crept into the church that, that was wrong, but that, you know, hold fast that, which is good was a, um, a fundamentally conservative injunction to, to not throw everything out, to not throw out the baby with bathwater. And, and, um, this notion that there are going to be contraries, that truth is, um, a, a complex in one, um, Means that that no institution, no human thing is going to be perfect, and and that it's our it's our job um, as believers to 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 hold those tensions rather than to ease our own discomfort by coming down on one side or the other. So he sees the disciples' quest as um, he has an, an essay called "The Tragic Joseph Smith and the Tragic Quest," and and he sees this sort of fundamental need to to balance um, contraries in oneself as, as, as meaning that discipleship is never going to be easy and comfortable. It's, it's not, it's not supposed to be. Um, and and so I I think that's a useful model to say, look, you're, you're not supposed to just only feel warm and fuzzy at church. If if you're doing it right, it's going to stretch you and test you and make you mad. (laughs) Um, and, and that's what it's for.
1: Um, do, do you think that there are other thought leaders now, modern day, that sort of exemplify that way of thinking? Because as I think of different talks and and things that are shared, certainly at general conference, but in other places, that would say very much not what you just said and what Eugene England taught.
0: Yeah, I, I think um, there there has always been a string within Mormonism that really values certainty. And, you know, Terrell certainly brings that out in his in his book that that that. Um, you know, there's a strain of Mormon thought that, that's been present really from the beginning, but that was ascendant starting in the 60s and 70s, maybe in reaction to the um, uncertainty and chaos of American life in that period that said, no, no, um, you know, what's the primary song? Keep the commandments in mm-hmm. this, there is safety and peace, mm-hmm. right? And and that's a really appealing message. And, um, and it fits with lots of people's experience, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I do think that, Um, maybe for, for children, um, that that's a, that's a valuable message. If you listen to your parents, you're going to be spared from a lot of, you know, painful things that you really don't need to experience um, to learn, but that um, at some point you really do have to grow out of them. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with, with feeling comfortable and, um, you know, feeling like you belong comfortably in the church and that, that people mostly believe the same as you, and you don't have, you know, it's you don't have to get in a fight in every Relief Society <laughs> lesson. Um, in fact, I think <laughs> yeah. it's probably a bad idea. But um, you know, we are going to see. It's interesting, just this week with President Nelson's letter about vaccination and masking, that you know, a different group of people than those who usually have their politics come into conflict with their faith are having that same crisis, and so. I, you know, I, I do think it's inevitable for almost all of us that some deeply held belief is is going to come into conflict with authoritative pronouncements, um, or even not a deeply held, held belief, like a commandment of God. If you look at Abraham, you know, we're we're told all through the scriptures that these conflicts are going to happen, that our conscience is going to be pricked, and and we are going to struggle with with knowing what God wants and what we ought to do. And so I I think Gene England is a great guide to that struggle and and sort of how to how to live those questions with integrity.
1: If Gene England were alive today, would he have faced the the uh, the backlash for lack of a better word coming to my mind right away, like he did from Bruce R. McConkie? Would we see that today or would there would there would there be more space for someone like him to say the things that he said to find that third way?
0: Yeah, I think there's lots more space partly because the field of Mormon studies has expanded hugely. There are just more people writing more different things from more different perspectives on Mormonism. I think, I think there actually even probably was more space when he was alive, Hmm. Um, but he tended to go straight into the whirlwind. Um, And, you know, I think that was a a matter of his temperament as much as it was of the church culture at the time. Um, But now there's definitely more, especially, um, if you don't want to work for the church or work at BYU, um I, you know, I think there are are few things that um certainly all of the things he said would be are, are fine and are are said regularly in various seminars and and all over the you know, there's i it's it's almost not funny, but it's it's surprising how controversial he was at the time because you look back and read what he wrote now, and it just doesn't seem. You know, like anything you couldn't hear at the Mormon History Association or Association for Mormon Letters or, a, you know, it, it's too tame for Sunstone these days, um, <laughs> most of what he said. So I I do think there's there's lots more room and that has to do partly with scholarship and partly with the ways church culture has changed in response to the Internet. And even more, I think, in response to the growth of the church, um, general authorities don't write, you know, 10 page re- letters about theology to anyone anymore. They just, they've got other things to do. They're they're worried about administrative things. um, And and they, you know, they they just, I I just don't think they engage those kinds of questions. Um, They're sort of pushed down to lower levels of the hierarchy.
1: What, what are other things about the life or the writings or teachings of, of Gene England? I sort of sent you that outline from what uh, Terrell and I have uh, discussed, and it sounds like you've read at least a portion, if not all, of the book that he uh, wrote about his life. What else do you have want to share that you feel like, oh, Terrell, I can't believe you missed this part? Or, I mean, this was a byline, and this is really so much more pivotal.
0: I don't think there's anything um, that... That Terrell, I, I certainly don't know what Terrell missed because again, I didn't do that kind of biographical research. Um, it was interesting to me that he and I um, picked up on a lot of the same moments and the same letters as as really key points. Um, I actually have just been reading today for the first time, really diving into his um, biography, and I was a little worried at a couple points. I was like, "Oh, people are going to think that I'm just." that I was just summarizing his his biography. <laughs> and um, I, I promise I wasn't, um, we were not in touch and I was deliberately not in touch with Terrell because well, it's easy uh, for me to feel like he's the real scholar and I'm the wannabe. And I, I knew if I, if I disagreed with him I would be too afraid to keep writing. So um, even <laughs> if he would have been willing to be in touch with me, I didn't ask him. Um, I think I... I might disagree with him some about you know, whether the, there seems to be an implication in some of the places that if only Gene had been a little more politically savvy or a little more careful about the way he approached the brethren, that things would have gone better and they would have listened to him. And I, I think that's probably not quite fair. I, I think that um, the church structure sort of militates against engagement with even loving and faithful critics hmm. that... Um, there, there probably was no diplomatic way that, that Gene could have said some of the things he said that, that would have not gotten him in trouble, particularly once he was at BYU and, and, um, you know, in, if he, if he'd stayed in Minnesota or California, um, I, you know, I think he might've had a different trajectory, but he, he wanted to be in the center of things and he wanted to be, um influential in the church. I mean, I think he really felt like he could have an influence for good and wanted to. Um, one of the things that I think was really hard, it it there wasn't really a way to fit it into my book, and I, I don't know if Terrell hit it as hard as I would have if I had, was just how unbelievably charismatic Gene was personally. I mean, people talk about him walking into a room, you know, like the lights went on and angels sang and Um, you know, that he and Charlotte just lit up every room in which they were present, especially when there were both of them. I think they sort of, you know, had this synergy as a couple that just crackled around them. Um, And Charlotte's still like that, Um, you know, you meet her and you just can't not be captivated. And um, I I wonder how that um, changed Gene's experience, both, both in the way that he thought and, and his expectations for how people were going to respond to him mm-hmm. um, and then how people did respond to him. I think bureaucrats are suspicious of charismatic people um, and charismatic people often are just shocked when someone doesn't like them instantly. You know, they don't have a plan for how to deal with people who disagree with them or are not immediately charmed. And I, I, I see that in Gene sometimes that he just he was expecting people to like him because almost everybody did. Right. And so, right. you know, when presented with somebody who, you know, like Bruce R. McConkey, who seemed to have a a dislike for him even before they interacted at all. Um, you know, McConkie was already at sort of defcon 1 um <laughs> when he got Gene's letter and I just I I don't think he was equipped for that. And and I'm not, I'm not sure how you would capture that in a biography or on the page, but I think that charisma is something that um deserves more exploration.
1: With with your bo- book being, as I understand it, if not the first, it's one of the first two in these Introduction mm-hmm. to Mormon Thought, uh, what do you think the value on a bigger scale uh, these... Particular books will be on introducing um, this generation of members of the church to people who they may not be aware of, or uh, allowing members of the church who are aware of who these individuals are to get to know them better. What do you think the value of, of this series in general will be to to the uh, you know the the membership of the church?
0: Yeah, um, I. I mean, one thing that's really interesting is that that Matt and Joe really pushed me hard to set England's thought in dialogue with American thought, um, sort of more broadly. Um, and I resisted at first because Gene was so thoroughly Mormon, and all of his, you know, his William James comes filtered through Witso and Talmage, and his, you know, he he kind of reads Tillich like a little bit, but he, you know, most of most of his thought comes sort of pre-mormonized to him and he he's he's very much um shaped by by mormonism more than any other than anything else and i think that's less true of young people who might be sort of starting to to look at mormon studies now and so having a way to set mormon thinkers in conversation with um you know american intellectual culture more broadly i think can be really valuable and then i think um One of the things I really like about doing it as a series of um, looks at different people is that, that Mormonism really resists sort of coherent theologizing. It always has sort of resisted systematic theology. And for both insiders and outsiders, I think it's really useful to see Mormonism through the lens of a bunch of people who came at it from different angles and had different experiences. Um, and so so I really like the idea of several sort of snapshots from various vantage points of what Mormon doctrine looks like.
1: And, and if people haven't um, sort of listened to that old episode with uh, Matt and Joe uh, and get, you know, the, gain the perspective of what this is, these will be people that are uh, like Brighamite sort of um, followers of the church, but also others who uh, come at Mormonism from different angles, as I understand it.
0: Yeah. So like the, the next book is Michael Austin's book on Bardas Fisher, who is this Mormon novelist whose widow spent decades uh, filing lawsuits and sending nasty letters to anyone who called him a Mormon novelist. Um, <laughs> the way Mike puts it is that um, that Bardas Fisher was an atheist, but Mormonism was the religion he did not believe in. You know, he was <laughs> shaped by Mormonism, but very much. Not a believer, so so people like that, you know, will will end up in the series too, and I, and I think that's a really that is also a valuable lens, right, to see people who were sort of touched by the restoration movement but went in a completely different direction than the Brighamites.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating because people will hear that and go, well, what do I want to know about a guy that has nothing to do with the church or that says, you know, Mormonism is absolutely wrong. What it sounds like you've had at least an opportunity to be aware of who that person is at very least, and maybe read some of that. What, what do you think we can gain from that sort of perspective?
0: Um, that's a great question. Uh, be- I don't know vardas Fisher's novels well, but I'm thinking about other, um, novelists of his period who I, I do know a little better who, um, Maybe weren't quite as adamantly against the church, but definitely were not believers by the time they were doing their writing. And um I, you know, I think there's a perspective when you're not trying to defend your own personal beliefs. You can you can just see things a little more clearly. Mm-hmm. I think um uh that that some distance is helpful, especially when people um leave and are not bitter or angry. I think, I think there's a way that they can sense what it is in Mormonism that is still appealing, what still holds them, what, what can shape your worldview. And I I do think you get it something about sort of the deep essence of the faith separated maybe from the cultural trappings or even um, the kind of devotional attachments that are more emotional than intellectual or um more more personal that have to do with your own personal experience i think getting uh, and and fiction does this especially well right mm-hmm. like lets you have someone else's experience of the faith
1: um because yeah, what what i always get afraid of and, and what i think you know a lot of these people especially those who who study mormon studies but um you know, I would hate for anyone to just be like, oh, that's something that is someone who doesn't, you know, appreciate the church or whatever, and then doesn't even give it a, a second thought. I don't think that most of the people who listen to this. Are those type of people because of the kind of conversations that we have? But but I hope for a larger appeal to people to say, no, this is just a different lens. You're not going to leave the church if you read this particular thing or learn about this particular viewpoints on the church. In fact, it can be very, um, you know, testimony building or faith You know, affirming, or just allow you opportunities to have various questions come to mind. That I think, for a while, it seems, you know, certainly in my own personal journey, that like it was taught, where if it's not, if it's not straight down the line, boy, you better not. That book will burn your hand, or that website will, you know, burn your eyes out. Those kind of things.
0: Yeah, um, I'm very lucky that I grew up um, in a very. Devout, warm, and home where inquiry was encouraged um, mm-hmm. in in all different directions. Um, but my dad used to say something that I think is especially helpful, which is that truth is sometimes on the far side of uncomfortable learning. Um, it, you know, so so I think that there can be things that will unsettle your convictions um, and and force you to stretch and make space for new ideas that that don't feel comfortable, but um, I'm really confident that that there's a way to find truth and peace on the far side of that kind of stretching and and that it is satisfying in a way that um, unchallenged ideas are, are not.
1: I absolutely love that. I absolutely love it. Let's take a quick break. Uh, I want to just take a break real quick and we'll come back. I want to get to know you a little bit more because you're not just this book, Christine. I want to know a little (laughs) bit more about you. We'll come back and do that in the second half of the cultural
2: hall. Hey, this is Dan, the laptop man from PC laptops. Are you experiencing panic attacks, nausea or diarrhea? Is your computer not turning on? Is it running super slow? Is your internet crawling or is it just randomly crashing? you could be suffering from ICS, irritable computer syndrome. I want you to ask yourself, when was the last time you had your PC cleaned? Over time, Windows, updates, spyware, malware, and dangerous viruses will make your computer run like crap. You need to bring in your laptop or desktop PC, no matter what brand it is, and let me run a 100% free virus scan, malware, and spyware scan on your computer. Don't wait and risk losing everything. Now, why are we doing this for free? Because we want to impress you so much that if you or any of your friends or family need a computer, service, or phone repair, you come to PC Laptops first. Get into any one of our locations right now or check us out at PCLaptops.com. PC Laptops, where computers start at $7.99. PC Laptops, we love you.
1: A busy, full summer from Best DJ in Utah. Go to com. Why, that is me, Richie T., and I would love to be able to play music at your upcoming wedding Or maybe you're having a company party, or maybe you're thinking already for the holiday party. Whatever it is that's on your schedule, you should get the number one highest-rated DJ for the state of Utah. Now I know you're thinking, I don't even live in Utah, Richie. Would you ever do an event in Washington State? Oh, I've already done that before. Would you ever do an event in California? Been there too. How about Louisiana? Uh huh. Texas? Yes. Point is, uh, you know, you, you throw shekels my way, I'll come to wherever you're at. We could even combine it and make it an episode of the cultural hall mind blown if you are in need of a dj at all or someone in your family's get married would like to be able to talk to me i would love to be able to talk to them its bestdjinutah.com
2: When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit Lennondesign.com.
1: Here in the second half of the Cultural Hall, uh, you know, you should become a Patreon subscriber of the Cultural Hall, if for no other reason but to see the fine place uh, of Christine. She has great art and candlesticks. And if you are not a Patreon subscriber, you do not get to see the video. Too bad. So sad. Go to patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. Now, Matt and Joe didn't just come to you and say, hey, random person Christine, why don't you go ahead and write this book as part of this series? Tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: Um, I, uh, I guess Matt and Joe know me because I was the editor of dialogue from 2009 to 2015. Um, so I, I get, I published both of them during that time, uh, Matt was in graduate school. Both of them were in graduate school, um, and doing great work. And so I went to conferences and begged them to send some of their good stuff to me at dialogue. Um, Uh, I got into Mormon studies in a sort of roundabout way. I uh, was a graduate student in German literature Mm. um, at Michigan in the mid-90s and realized that there was not going to be any academic job market, Um, you know, that that there was no job at the end of this rainbow, and I decided that I didn't love it enough to write a dissertation just for fun, and so I um, stopped it at ABD and started having babies and was home with them. I had three kids in three and a half years. Oh my gosh. um, So came home from church one day after, you know, several years of just walking the halls in church because nobody was in nursery. And you know, I I just, and, and I was so mad. I was like, why am I doing this? Like, this is totally useless. Why, why are, why do we take kids to church? And then I start, you know, calmed down a little bit and thought, well, when did we start taking kids to church, because I knew that pioneer practice had been different in terms of meetings, but I didn't really know sort of when. And I remembered that when I was very young, we had junior Sunday school in the morning. We took the sacrament there and that a few of my friends didn't come back to church with their families for sacrament meeting that they stayed home with an older sibling or whatever, and that that had been at least, you know, um, a practice of some very faithful Latter-day Saints when I was younger. So. I started thinking about this and trying to figure out where i could find out more about it and um, i had been friends with richard and claudia bushman's son in college Hmm. and had we'd stayed in touch enough that i had an email address and i was like hey i need to talk to your mom because if anybody would know about this she's the one and so i wrote a letter to claudia bushman this was in the spring of 2003 and said you know, do you know about this? Like, when did we start taking kids to church? And she said, well, I do know this one quotation from Brigham Young, who said, don't bring your, you know, squalling babies to church. Um, So we didn't do it always. Um, But I don't really know. But I'm running this seminar at BYU this summer in the Joseph Fielding Smith Institute um, to do research on Mormon women's lives. So why don't you apply for that and maybe come research it yourself? And I was like, did did you miss the part of my letter where I've got three tiny kids that I'm running around the church with? Um, But Claudia had done her PhD with six tiny kids and, you know, didn't think anything of that. So um, I took my sister with me out to BYU and spent a summer doing research um, as it ended up on primary songs. And that was my introduction to Mormon studies. And then a couple of years later, Claudia was on the board of dialogue when they started looking for an editor and she said, well, I know this woman who needs a project. (laughs) (laughs) So that was how I ended up in a, you know, very roundabout way in Mormon studies.
1: And and then today in, uh, in cooperation with doing this book, you also write other things and, and, and.
0: Yeah. I've, um, sort of kept my foot in Mormon studies a little bit. Um, I get asked, um, usually when there's, when somebody needs a panelist, um, for something everyone knows that I'm a jack of all trades and master of none. So, and I'm willing to make a fool of myself on short notice for (laughs) academic things. So I get asked to do stuff every once in a while. I still occasionally blog at By Common Consent um, and I work with Mormon women for ethical government and and do some writing there. And then I was a series editor for the Maxwell Institute's books on the Book of Mormon Mm -hmm. um, and get asked to do editing for Mormon studies people. Every once in a while.
1: So. That, that looming question that always uh, sort of wraps out conversations like this is what's on the horizon then? What's up next now that this is out and and people are reading and consuming this and saying, boy, I really like the way Christine did this.
0: It's a great question. Um, and I don't know. Um, the story of my life is that I have never known what I want to be when I grow up and every job I've ever had has sort of fallen into my lap. So um, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I really don't know.
1: Absolutely awesome. Uh, I'm so excited about this series. It's the Introductions to Mormon Thought series. Uh, edited by Matt Bowman and Joseph Spencer you can go back and and like I said at the beginning of this you can listen to episode 531 where they sort of queue up the whole series this the first interview in uh, in uh, reaction to that series it's Eugene England a Mormon liberal uh, by the University of Illinois Press encourage you guys to check it out and uh, and see what you can't learn about Eugene England or I feel like I'm the only one who calls him Eugene everyone that we've talked to about him it's Gene and so I'm like yeah why didn't we just call it Gene England then uh it feels so formal like i don't know this person um, well
0: he's actually George Eugene England Jr. so well
1: wh- where so was we're that already
0: being informal when we say Eugene
1: where was that on the book cover that's what i want to know uh christine <laughs> we ask uh everyone who steps into the cultural hall three questions i would ask those of you right now the first question is is do you have a calling right now and if so what is it
0: i'm the young women's secretary in the Lyndall ward in the saint louis State.
1: ah Uh, if you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick?
0: Um, ward choir director forever and ever.
1: Now, are you the ward choir director who has the baton or is hand sufficient?
0: Hands. Okay. Okay. For for choral music. If I had an orchestra, I would use a baton. You need a more precise beat with instruments than you do with singers.
1: You have thought about that before. That is the most specific answer to that question that I've ever heard. Uh, The last question, and we ask you to interpret it however you will. The question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith?
0: Um, Can I tell a really short story? So uh, in my old ward in Massachusetts, we had a very vibrant Relief Society email list. And one day somebody uh, wrote and said, hey, I've, I've got the wrong lid for my crock pot it doesn't quite fit. Does anybody have the same problem? And it turned out that there were like, you know, there was this, there were like seven crockpots that had ended up with lids all swapped and all, you know, messed up. And that is my favorite part of Mormonism, that we love each other in such real and practical ways that our crockpots get all mixed up because we are bringing dinner to people and and we're up in each other's lives and each other's crockpots all the time.
1: Well, we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall.
0: Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat, on the back row, we really gotta go on the Cultural Hall show.